welcome everybody to the Slotway Connection. Today it will be just me and Sharp. Uh, I'm Joe as usual, and here's my co-host Sharp. And today on the podcast, we have once again Ramsey Russell of GetDucks.com. Hey Ramsey, how you doing today? I'm doing fine. How y'all? Not too bad. Not too bad. Just in the in the duck blues, wishing you know, wishing it was still season up here in the northern hemisphere. Yeah, well, it's duck season somewhere is what we always say. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. So, so how's your season gone so far? You know, hunting in the states and then uh, hunting abroad. Yeah, our season went good. You know, it wasn't it wasn't the best season in the world. Deep South was warm this year, and uh, at least our our corner of the world was. And we certainly had better duck season. But gosh, I don't know. Y'all keep up with the fact that back during COVID, I had this idea. I'd hunted a lot of places in the world, six continents worth of ducks, and I decided I had a lot of places in my backyard I hadn't seen. And I I got to tallying up and looking and didn't have nothing to do back during those Tiger King batshit crazy days of COVID. And I had hunted uh, 30, 35 or 36 states and decided I wanted to hunt them all. And then I found out we kill swans in nine states. I want to, I want to hunt swans and all of them. I'm I'm now I'm up to about forty five or forty six states, three away, four away, and um, and and I'm halfway through the kill kill swans in five states. And that you know, so what that's done is it's just it's put me on the road, <clears throat> and kind of kind of just get in touch with the heartbeat of duck hunting, which is to say, you know, we we operate at getducks.com with a lot of great outfitters, but when I do these road trips, I don't want to just hunt on outfitted hunts, man. I I grew up self-hunting. I grew up hunting a lot of public. And via social media and our own podcast, Duck Season Somewhere, I've made a lot of contact with just regular folks like myself. And I and I really like to get off. It might be a, a young person hunting uh, a creek bank or his papa's back 40 or uh, it might be somebody hunting public, or it might be you know just a varied and sundry, you know. And I've, I've ended up uh, hunting in the last couple of years um, all four flyways uh, from California to Delaware, Connecticut, and that area down to South Carolina, back over you know almost south end, all the way um, all the way over to New Mexico and Arizona. And it's been a heck of an adventure. And what I realized is. We got a whole lot of cool hunts and cool places to hunt ducks here in North America. Heck, we've got, depending on how you count them, I know a lot of your listeners are tied up to the 41 or hooked up on, we got this notion of 41. And if that's what you want your list to be, then by all means make it 41. But to me, it's 58. I like to count subspecies. And I don't include uh, sandhill cranes. I'm talking waterfowl. Ducks, geese, swans. That's what I'm chasing. 58 subspecies, and I'm five away. I'll probably never get drawn for a uh, emperor goose, but that's okay too. And, uh, and and what I've learned is, you know, I'll tell you, I tell you, the craziest thing I've learned in 20 years of extended travel, hunting 150 to 250 days a year, is that there are really, really, really good days. That, you, that the duck gods smile and you can do no wrong. And there are just those really, really, really bad days because of the weather, because of the migration, just because, whatever, uh, that you can do no good. 
But yeah. the most duck hunting days is all in between. And, you know, the more I duck hunt, the more in-between type days you get. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and but, but, but that's okay. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm not, I'm not out there duck hunting. Nobody listening is out there duck hunting to, to sustain their families. We eat duck meat because it's great, because it's a tribute to the sport and to uh, the hunt and, and the wildlife itself. But it, it's not because we have to. And, you know, yeah. once you kind of get your mind wrapped around, what I've learned is once, once I get to the point that once I got to the point that I qualified hunting success differently than, than a limit, it really changed um, what I enjoy and how I enjoy and where I enjoy duck hunting. And that, that's, that's just it in a nutshell. I mean, you know, so you, this year we had good days and bad days. It, it, uh, it concerns me. I heard, you know, we did a lot of podcast episodes and we talked to a lot of our contacts. And sure enough, when we got up into the Dakotas out west, uh, up into Prairie, Canada, the further west you went, it was dry, dry, dry. Uh, hunting in Saskatchewan last year, it was drier. And um, I hunted with about eight farmers one morning, and they described it as drier than it had been since 2022. And and it's like I, I'd never seen it as dry, scorched earth dry. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't count. You know, of course I count how many ducks I shoot this morning by what species. Got to abide the limits, but I don't matriculate my season or lifetime total. That that just is not important to me. But you know what I do, uh, Joe, is I, back in 1994, uh, when I raised Springers, Springers Spaniels back in the day, I, I used, I just somehow started keeping track of the number of birds my dogs pick up. Yeah. And golly, man, all these years later, the book's getting kind of thick towards the end, but I hate to quit. You know, yeah. I like to see it. I enjoy going back and looking. You know, and that little char dog I've got uh, has picked up about 35 or 36 waterfowl species. And this year she picked up almost like 25 or 30. Heck, she picked up nine swans. Y'all see this? Man, whoever said dynamite comes in small packages on a 50-pound yeah. <laughs> lab uh, that was an absolute little 50-pound or foot-fast lab, y'all see them bringing big old, big old swans. Yeah, and uh, sometimes you don't know who's got who, but but I tell you something interesting. It's just this is purely antidote. I'm not a population biologist. Don't describe to me. There's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of smart biologists with state and federal agencies and, and NGOs like Ducks Unlimited and Delta Waterfowl do a great job at that. Not me. And uh, but but I tell you, just an interesting observation of how that how that. Uh, dryness translated into my duck season is hunting in three flyways this year. That little lab picked up uh, 25, 27, some odd percent of the ducks or the waterfowl that she picked up were mallards. And not one single mallard was a, was a juvenile bird. You know, I, and I look, I, that that's just kind of my Duck nerd them is, is when I get birds, I look at their wings, I look at the feathers, I look at the beak, I look at the diagnostic, I like the age and sex. I'm like, you know, somebody in social media banged up on us. I was up in uh, Alberta or Saskatchewan one, and we shot some pintails. 
And of course, that time of year, September, the, the waterfowl have not molted yet. Yeah. There were a lot of there were a lot of adult greenheads that were kind of showing green in the air, but your pintails were, were still just brown ducks. And in Canada, they don't differentiate. If the limit's four pintails, next year's going to be eight. It's just it's just four or eight pintails. It's not a it's not a it's not species or sex. It's just yeah. it's just numbers. And one guy just waded into us in social media about all the number of ten pintails we were shooting. And the truth of the matter is. Out of, out of about nine ducks in that pile, one was a hen. The rest, the rest were uh, were males. So I, I like to look at that kind of stuff. That's just kind of who I am. And uh, it was it was disturbing. It was alarming to me that that of all those mallards you picked up, there weren't any hatchier birds. So I wonder out loud to myself, what are the biologists going to find? when they fly mallard surveys this year. You know, my understanding, and again, I don't sit in those meetings or, or, or have a say in it, but my understanding is the way uh, adaptive harvest management is used to uh, prescribe bag limits and number of days in a season is predicated in the central and Mississippi flyways on mallards. Yeah. And if we don't have a lot of baby mallards, we probably are going to be looking at a restricted season moving forward. Let's just all hope we get a Noah build an ark type uh, miracle up up in up in the prairies before uh, in time. Let's just hope that we you know. Somebody asked me the other day what that really meant. You know what what does you know what does it mean to me that these birds are, are young and what's the importance of that? And the importance of that is it, it underscores to me that we need habitat, 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 habitat. We cannot have enough habitat. What, what, my, my, my limited understanding of waterfowl population is this. Remember those old chi-chi plants we used to buy? You put something in them and pour water, a little green hair would come out. Yeah, just chip it, yeah. Add water, add water, and you get more dough. The prairie pothole, that engine needs water. That's where the ducks come from. And, uh, and you know, on the downside, the flip side is we need wetlands, ephemeral wetlands require dry periods of time to remain productive. You know, a, a perpetually wet is a lake, and that's not as yeah. productive as, you know, ephemeral wetlands. So it's just a, it's a lot of play right now, man. And uh, But I'll tell you this, uh, I, I really like to just... I like to duck hunt. I like to be around duck hunters. I like the food and the culture and the stories and the people and the dogs and the drama and the, the calls and, and the techniques and the different the different habitats, the different scenery, the, just the whole package, you know. And I, I think we all got to love duck hunting for what it is and what it ain't. Yeah. Um, are we ever going to go back to the numbers we saw in the in the 80s or the 60s or the 40s? Probably not. But that's okay. You know, I, I find comfort. And I'm going to end on, I'll end this little, this little I know I'm running on, but I'm going to end this this, uh, this answer on this. I find comfort in the fact that head and shoulders, and I mean like a giant among everybody else in the world, the United States of America has 
has a North American waterfowl management plan that is consisting, again, of state and federal agencies, plural, universities doing mountains of research in, in all facets of waterfowl conservation. You've got a, a lot of um, NGOs like Ducks Unlimited and Delta Waterfowl. And then you've got, you've got the most passionate, put your time and your money where your mouth is, where your hearts are, hunting, hunters funding this, funding these agencies through, through license sales and uh, charitable donations, volunteer work. We, we, are, we are head and shoulders. It's like we've already, if we were in a race against everybody else, we've laughed them once. And we're coming up, fixing to tap them on the shoulder and pass them again, head and shoulders above everybody else. But by necessity, because nobody else, nowhere else on earth, do you see the tremendous amount of hunting pressure that yeah. we have in the United States. You know, and and we 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 want to shoot those limits. We want to shoot those birds. Every duck hunter listening probably. Every single day that he's got a vacation or a weekend or can sneak away, um, he duck hunting during duck season, and you don't see that elsewhere in the world. So there's, you know, we we need to keep on going, and and if times get tough because of this drought, I think that's our signal to roll up our sleeves and work harder, put even more time and money into it. That's 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 my thoughts. Yeah. And yeah, that's, you know, that's a super good way of thinking. And I, I can't agree more with you. Um, and Sharp can contest to this. Like, you know, you look on the internet nowadays and you know, I'm not going to put names or groups out, but it almost seems like everyone points the finger and starts pointing out, you know, it's Missouri's fault for, for corn. And, you know, every, you know, points the finger at different regions, the way different people hunt instead of, you know, being like, instead of getting down to hey, what is the problem? Finding that problem instead of instead of blame the blame game and let's find a solution and let's all come together as duck hunters and and work at it. You know, see we you know see how we can we can make this flourish. The difference is people hunt. Yeah. That that is one of the most amazing aspects of duck hunting worldwide and here in the United States. about this thing of ours, it's this duck hunting passion is is how people hunt. Uh, we all know what a mallard sounds like. Mac, mac, mac. We all we all got calls. We all blow mallards. But it's crazy that that you, you go to go to uh, around the Chesapeake Bay. You go down to Real Foot Lake where they're blowing those metal reeds and still anking ducks, ank, 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 ank with their mouths when they get close. When you get out west, when you get out in the, in the Midwest, when you get to South Louisiana blowing cane calls or uh, Arkansas, you know, you got loud Main Street type calls. You got little soft cane calls. You got, you know, the, the cadence, the speed varies, but it all works. People that speak a multitude of languages come from all different colors: brown, yellow, black, red, uh, different religions, different creeds, and you put us in a duck blind, and we're all duck hunters. Yeah, you know, I, I had this discussion. We were in a, a far-flung place called Azerbaijan. I love it over there. It, it, it's, it's that part of the world is literally like uh, we're Aladdin and Sinbad and Alibaba and the Forty Thieves. It's that part of the world, you know, Persia. 
And um, they don't face it. And, and even Google Translate, uh, yeah. you can communicate one or two words to your person talking, but you can't have sentences and conversations. But I don't need to. A client of mine was telling me last time we were over there, he goes, man, I just wish these guys spoke English. It's very difficult. It's very frustrating. I go, he's a duck hunter, dude. He goes, well, well what do you mean? I, I go, well, you're a duck hunter, and he's a duck hunter. You don't need to speak words. And I found that to be true. Me, yeah. me and some of my guys over there at Deals, one of my favorites, we don't speak each other's language, but, man, we, we kind of have, we kind of bonded, you know, with verbal cues and just he's in the boat and I make a hand motion or, or he makes a hand motion where we're going to put the decoys and how we're going to do it, how we're going to create the landing zone. And we don't speak, we're, we're as far away from speaking each other's language as you could possibly be. Yeah, so we get along, and and that, that to me that's very satisfying, you know. And uh, now I will say this: one of my buddies I told that to said, "Let's go." Even if he did speak English, he wouldn't understand you. And uh, <laughs> I can't help but laugh. I got a terrible accent, you know. And, yeah, uh, but anyway, it, it, it's a it's a good thing, and and I I caution people to, you know, we go to different parts of the world, and. Uh, I'll use Argentina because newsflash, and this is monumental newsflash. Yesterday morning, it became official. Argentina no longer requires a vaccination to enter their country. Yeah. That's huge. That's yeah. huge. I hope all oh, yeah, the world finally realizes it opens back up. That is huge for us that, that you no longer need a vaccination to enter this country. That has had the border closed since forever. It was only since uh, December, January that even their citizens could just leave and come back. Well, now I don't need a vaccination to go down there. So guess where Randy's going to be spending a long time? I did not realize just how much I loved that part of the world, how it was a big piece of my heart. It takes up a big old chunk. It's a piece of it until I couldn't go for two or three years. Yeah, and man, I, I I don't mean I missed just the trigger pulling. I missed it. I missed my friends. I missed the food. I missed everything about it. I missed that, that favorite place I talk about all the time. It's not. It's not. A, it's not a spot on a map. It's a place in time. It's like going back to the late eighteen hundreds or what I imagine parts of America looked like back then, before urban drift and all this stuff built up. It, it's just incredible. I don't speak the language there either, but we get along. And, uh, and, and you know, there are times we see lots and lots of ducks. The bag limits are, are far more generous, likewise for Mexico or Azerbaijan. But, you know, it's really not that they have so many more ducks. It's that they have so much fewer hunters. Yeah. There's so few hunters in a lot of these other countries. And, and and I've just I've just I've, I've began to believe, right or wrong, that we've got a lot of hunting pressure problems. And 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 the the crazy thing about that is is uh, if we're talking about your duck call in Louisiana or Missouri or somewhere, and it's it, the habitat's not good, we can fix that. We can go out and disc it to reset the site. We can do multiple management. We can come. But make some uh, some hot crops. Whatever. We can improve that. If, yeah. Uh, if we're if we're missing ducks too bad, 
and we all got a buddy that does, he can go to the shooting range and sort that out. If we got a dog that, that, that's not acting right, we can train them. But when it comes down to something like hunting pressure, especially in the context of waterfowl management, what do we do? I mean, we all want to shoot ducks. We all deserve to shoot ducks. Man, everybody. I want I don't want every I don't want everybody listening to take or child hunting. I want them to take every child in the neighborhood duck hunting. Get everybody fired up. Take your grown buddies out duck hunting. Yeah. Get them involved in this sport because we need it. But so much hunting pressure. And and I just I heard something the other day. Um one of my former classmates at Mississippi State said, and I've been thinking about this, you know, and it's almost like we hunters, we want quality. I hear it, you hear it, out throughout the internet, a lot of people, it seems like maybe the older you get, the more misgivings you have. You, the more you compare last season to the best season you had 20 years ago, the more misgivings we have about the, the state of the waterfowl hunting as it is. I think I think we're all, I think duck hunting is due for a little bit of a reset. And here's what I mean. You know, uh, John F. Kennedy, one of his most famous quotes, um, was asked not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Well, I'm gonna spin that around and say, I think it's time for us to start asking ourselves. Not what ducks can do for me, for my ego, for my for my sense of self, for my sense of identity. Not what I can take from that resource, but what can I give Get that back, resource yes. to yeah. benefit my tradition and my culture and my quality hunting experience? Do, do I need to go into to the place I hunt and beat them up the every hard, time? Make the hard decision that I'm going to hunt this duck call one time this week and one time only. Yes. I'm going to go spend my time doing something else. But I want to go out there and take my children and show them what it's like when more rested ducks come in and do their thing. Or do I just want to keep going out there and getting discouraged shooting one to none ducks because I'm overpressuring my ducks? I don't know. I don't, I'm just thinking out loud here. But I think that beyond just our hunting habits, Especially if we've got a drought coming, who knows about this avian influenza? With the habitat changes, with all that we're faced with in the year 2022, I think we all need to take a hard look in the mirror and say, what can I do to make waterfowl and waterfowl hunting better? Yeah. What can I do? You know, instead of just worrying about, you know, my neck, my, you know, slicking my hair back plucking my eyebrows and taking a tan and getting a tan in bed and go hanging up my ducks on, on Instagram to look good. I think I need to I think I think I need to get back to the heartbeat of something and say, you know what? I gotta do something. I'm I'm a I'm a ducks unlimited. Y'all talking about uh twenty staff down in Ducks Unlimited at that big event in Fort Worth right now. Man, Ducks Unlimited was founded by our forefathers in the worst drought. Yeah. That, that we've ever seen, the Dust Bowl days. Yeah, like, what, 19, what, 1937, I think, is when Ducks Unlimited came about. And they didn't quit. They didn't quit. They didn't say, oh, well, I'm going to learn to play golf. Heck no, man. They they founded, they, they founded, uh, they, they, they founded, um, 
Dr. Unlimited and look at it now. You know, that, that's, that's just what I think. That's, that's the kind of stuff I think about while I'm driving. Yeah. And you hit a good thing on the head. And, and I want to say this before uh, Sharp, because I know Sharp has a a good thing, um, question about this. But you said ego. And it, it definitely is, you know, ego where, you know, some guys get um, – they get competitive seeing, you know, seeing thy neighbor, you know, he goes comparing, you know, trying to keep it up with the Joneses on the YouTube, on the Instagram, on the Facebook of you see some guys and, you know, other flyaways or whatnot. And, you know, they have their big, you know, their full straps and the piles make smiles and everything, which I mean, like you, you know, you said in the past, you know, I, I mean, you want to we go duck hunting because we want to kill ducks. I mean, we're not going out there just to watch sunrises. I'm not going out there to watch the sun rise or drink yeah. coffee. No, I want to kill ducks. Yeah, we all do. We're hunters. We're not bird watchers. We're hunters. Yeah, you know. But 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 you know, I I, I take I take personal pride and satisfaction in the fact that as a hunter, not only are my financial contributions be a be a, a federal or state excise taxes, license sales. I buy a lot of licenses covering these states. Uh, duck stamps, buy five of them if you can. Going to Ducks Unlimited, committing to Ducks Unlimited, showing up and volunteering on the committees to help raise more money, going and putting up wood duck boxes, whatever I can do. Shake what I've got to do what I can do. We hunters are footing the bill for this thing, man. And here's the deal. It ain't just ducks. Man, when you start looking at these, these California, uh, I said California, I'm thinking California. If you start looking at these state budgets, whether they're looking at handicap access on public land, boat ramps, butterfly, pollinator, bird washing, bluebird boxing, guess who's paying for it, hunters? All of us. We're paying well, for it. But are you we get, doing enough? Are you, we got, doing enough? you got the Robertson Pittman Act, which is 11, 11% of all sporting goods sold goes towards conservation. Then you got your license sales. Um, and I like to – so. Ramsey, I'm a, I'm getting an ecology degree and at my school, there's not a lot of what you like quote the, uh, the hook and bullet biologist. I'm like yeah, yeah. very few in my class. And when we go do kind of field work and stuff, I tend to kind of be a little bit more aware of what's going on out in the woods. But I quoted you in one of my, uh, in one of my debates was I like you're saying where a bird watcher goes into a marsh and he's happy with just taking one picture of the bird. But a duck hunter goes into the marsh and wants to see the sky black with birds. And yeah. and it's the hunters are going to have to be the ones that that front the bill because these got like the bird watchers. They want to get on and be keyboard warriors about save the animals. But when it comes down to it, the gritty, gritty work actually going out and creating habitat, their hands are clean. You know, it, that I like you saying that because because. Every once in a blue moon, we get somebody dares to come on to our little Facebook page and uh, and be critical. And it'll be like Australia. It'll be uh, anti-hunting country, maybe Holland, something like that. Um, could be just some 15-year-old girl, you know, that, that just, just got an animal thing. You know, I don't know. But, but uh, most recently, it was some self-described duck hunters from Puerto Rico criticizing us shooting ducks in Guatemala. I went down to Guatemala to explore. 
And and they, you know, now look, I'm holding eight great blue wings, about a, uh, the limit's 20 a day. I'm holding eight ducks for the picture. I'm going hold 20 ducks up in there like I wanted to hold them. And, uh, and they just lit into me. And anytime I go to my page, I've got like five or six folks jumping on board to a thread in a foreign language. I better go translate it. It's usually not pleasant. And <laughs> I tried to explain to them. Now, on that day, I had been out and seen. They showed me where some of these mangrove marshes, uh, which are, take Mexico's mangrove, for example, you know, the, the productivity of that particular uh, habitat accounts for 80, 80, 80, 80% of the productivity of fisheries out in the saltwater. You know, it, that, that clabs, uh, uh, crabs and clams and oysters and shrimp and fish, vital. So we go into duck hunt there, and there's a levy. And I asked about that levy, and they said, oh, when we get done, we'll take you out and show you what, what this is going to look like. We'll show you the last levy they put in. And sure enough, we, we walked above that levee a little bit and walked down another levee that had been put in before this levee we'd been walking down. And it had stopped the water, just dammed it off, you know, and, and began to, uh, they began to uh, uh, evaporate all that water, and they started collecting salt to make sea salt. There's no habitat value in that. Let me tell you what, if you ever go to, that site or a site like that and see the kind of stuff I saw, you ain't never putting that salt in your mouth. And, uh, and then, and then if that ain't bad enough, they're draining to put in little small sugar cane. And y'all know to be from Louisiana, sugar cane ain't got no value for a duck. Oh, absolutely and, and not. So, and, and what, and so here I am being lambasted. We didn't shoot limits but for, for, for shooting ducks within the limits at a country that has fewer the size of Tennessee. It has fewer than 150 duck hunters nationwide. I'm being lambasted for that and just haven't seen this epic habitat loss. And all, all the big biologists will tell you that regulated duck hunting does not drive populations. Habitat drives populations. You know, and, and so... I'm like habitat's where it's at, man. And and you know, so but when these anti-hunters come on here, the the little the little fifteen-year-old cat loving Peter girl, I always address them respectfully. I come back to them, oh, here's my idea. But I always kind of say this, you know, the way I look at it, anti-hunters want more wildlife. They love animals and they want wildlife. I'm a hunter. I want wildlife. Now, can we agree on that? We both want wildlife. Okay. Oh yeah. Roll up, roll up your sleeves and put your hands deeply into your pocket as every hunter in America and join me in producing more wildlife. And you coming in and trying to kick my shins because, look, you ain't going to hurt my feelings. You coming in on my social media page that exists for recreational, educational enjoyment, trying to beat me up on hunting, you're barking up the wrong tree. Roll up your sleeves, put your hands in your pocket, and let's get busy working together on creating more wildlife. That's, what, that's all I have to say to an anti-hunter. Yeah, just, just going going to Starbucks and thinking about all the beautiful animals out in the woods ain't saving them. We got it, it, management takes hands-on activity and it costs money, and that's what we hunters do better than anybody. You know what I'm saying? When nobody is doing what American hunters are doing for wildlife, nobody, nobody on earth is doing what we as a population are doing to conserve 
wildlife. And uh, but that, that's all I got to say about that, I guess. Yeah. As far as Gump would say. <laughs> hey, Sharp, what was your question about overseas? So we were kind of talking, um, and out of all the kind of places you've been to, what area would you say kind of self-governs their wildlife pop or their waterfowl population the best, like without true government influence? Well, you know, a lot of these countries really don't have government influence. They don't have they don't have government agencies going out and doing credible surveys or habitat assessments. You know, they, they just don't. I, I don't, I'm not aware. I had a Russian tell me one time, we were just talking, and he explained to me that kind of the Russian way of doing things was that the, the, the governmental powers put, put, put the front of responsibility onto the hunters to regulate those, you know, their hunting habits from a standpoint of we hunters are so passionate about what we do, we certainly we wouldn't shoot ourselves out of wildlife. I don't know. I mean, it, I, I, that, that was loosely what, you know, broken Russian translating English, there could be some loss in translation. But, you know, I, I'll use Argentina for an example. Um, thank God there's not too many hunters down there because they, they don't do biological surveys. They don't, they don't go out and fly. They don't count habitat. They don't count breeding, breeding uh, broods or, or mating pairs. They don't do that. Are you kidding no, no, they don't do that. You know, um, most countries don't. You know, they don't have the financial resources or the scientific wherewithal or the cultural interest. I mean, you know, like I, we were we were interviewing a um, a really good biologist, Eduardo uh, Carrera, down in Mexico. He's going to be on a two part series. Uh, I don't know. Some, sometime, sometime, I think in uh, late April, May, on duck season somewhere. But I just called him up to get like an idea of you know scientific habitat. There we talked for forty five minutes. Man, about an hour into, it, I'm like, whoa, whoa, stop, 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 stop. Next, then I started again. We started the next hour. Man, he was a fountain of information. You know, on on uh, a lot of a lot of our most beloved North American species. Over winter, eighty percent of cinnamon tail, eighty percent of blue wing are south of the border. You know what I'm saying? A lot of pintails, da 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 da. All you know, and and how the habitats, what kind of habitats. But you know, along the discussion, one of the one of the biggest um, things that they're having to do in Mexico now, now. Get your mind wrapped around this. What I'm trying to say, as compared to America. So the things I, I wonder, Ramsey, we're we're talking about, you know. The duck populations, you know, dwindling or, n- or not doing what they they were, you know, 10, 20 years ago. But you look at snow goose population and how it's just thriving. And I've always wondered, it, you know, if, if if there's a way that, you know, us as hunters, biologists, DU, Delta Waterfowl, you know, California Waterfowl Association, is there something that we could take of how the, the the snow goose in North America is flourishing, and, and and try to use that towards towards the ducks. I mean, because you look at the snow geese, I mean, we're at a conservation seasons now where it's you know, no plugs, e collars, shoot as many as you want. Um, 
You know, what's your thoughts about that? Well, that that uh, that that conservation order has been in place for over twenty years, and at a, at a glance, I'd say you know you're looking at that's kind of like apples and oranges. You you've got a especially in the instance of snow geese with those Arctic geese. And again, there's a lot better people qualified than me to talk about this, but I'm based on my antidotal observations as a hunter that's traveled around and chased a lot of these birds for a long time. Those, those birds are flying up high up into the Arctic. Uh, it, they do have some uh, temperature issues. They have a little weather variability. Late snows are coming to get those guys, but they're going into a part of the world that doesn't have a lot of urbanization. And they're, they're, they have transitioned remarkably and and just a very few short amount of time to agriculture which is beginning to predominate the landscape you know here's a question think about agriculture how long has it existed on the american landscape 100 years 150 years yeah maybe you know what what did what did those geese and those ducks do for centuries preceding that they they used natural weapons well i, I was uh talking to uh a historian and uh, you know the very first out of state waterfowl experience that i ever did was when i grew up in the mississippi delta as a little boy waiting on carpool you see all these snow geese come overhead, migrating on frosty mornings. And uh, they didn't stop in the Mississippi Delta like they do now. They kept going south. And when I got up into college, just after college, I went and snow goose hunted down in Katy, Texas on that prairie. And we shot them in bean fields and rice fields and things like that. But historically, those birds would come off the Arctic. They would land and stage in Canada, and North Dakota on big ephemeral wetlands. And when they migrated, they kind of skipped like a stone once or twice. And they were marsh birds. They went down to that marsh we were just talking about. And that's where they lived. And a lot of the uh, market hunters and a lot of the back in the days you could eat and buy and trade in wild waterfowl, a lot of the restaurants, a lot of the, the buyers and therefore sellers largely ignored snow geese. That's where I think they earned a bad reputation for table fare because they were rank marsh birds. Well, rice fields are a surrogate for marsh. Yeah. You know, and and it's like a artificial marsh. And, and so as rice started to expand into uh, South Texas, Southeast Texas, Southwest Louisiana, and then on up into Arkansas, Mississippi, and you know, they began to evolve out of the marsh and into these rice fields to where now, here we look at them, they don't need that. They Sure, they need they need roof water, they need uh, drinking water, but man, they're, they are out there in these uh, wheat fields and soybeans and man, the cotton fields have got a lot of hen bit, they're, they're uh, or just little weeds and stuff, they're, they're out there uh, and corn and you know, they, they've evolved completely, and, and, and that's probably got a lot to do with their population uh, increasing drastically because they've got a lot more nutrition on the wintering ground than maybe they historically did when they were marsh birds. Ducks are a little bit different. Yeah. You know, they, they, they need different types of wetlands that are very, very – a lot of these uh, – they need grass. 
you know, to nasty and tall grass to net to keep away from foxes and hawks and eagles. And I mean, their their life cycle requirements are just different. And uh, and and so that is that is an upswing. You know, the the the, the geese seem to be doing uh, pretty darn good. The white geese, the speckled belly, seem to be. Uh, seem to be doing well. They're beginning to transition further north and more into agriculture and, and stuff during the uh, the wintering season. You know, their they're waterfowl are very adaptable. Uh, a lot of them are. They're very adaptable. And um, so I don't know, man. I, I just, I, I, I think, I just don't think we can compare even a lot of the ducks like mallards or the bigger ducks to the littler ducks, the, the teal. Yeah. So if you go up, go up to, to Prairie Canada, you know a lot of those teal and gadwall. They need little, small, shallow water bodies where they make a lot of their business up there in the prairie pothole, and those are especially vulnerable to to a drought. Um, and, and but ducks are also available. Like like um, I read or learned one time that when when the prairie potholes are dry. Pintails, for example, may not stop and, and nest in um, the Dakotas or Prairie County. They may fly on up to Alaska. There are times that Alaska has a third or more of the population of northern pintails, you know, during nesting season. That, that's, that's uh, you know, we can't discount that. I heard an interesting theory yesterday. I, I, I just, man, made me wonder, you know, back in the day, a lot of people trapped. Who traps anymore? The, the fur market and trap has gone to hell. Yeah. Um, and the boreal forest, and this ain't proven, it's just something I heard on a tailgate of a truck, take it for what it's worth. But but the boreal forests have, have not historically been just like ultra productive for puddle ducks, that like ephemeral wetlands, you know, like little beaver pond habitats that ebb and flow, the golden eyes, and um, a lot of these species do well in those deeper water habitats. That's kind of their principal uh, breeding place, but but somebody hypothesized yesterday on a tailgate of a truck that since since trapping's gone, the beaver population up in the boreal forest has exploded. There's a lot more beaver dams, a lot more ephemeral water, and he just wondered out loud if that could meaningfully impact puddle duck production for the better. It could. Who knows? I think one of the I think one of the hardest things for a southern duck hunter we're dealing with right now. There's lots of variables that that are that are moving and distributing and displacing wintering ducks that we're trying to hunt. We've talked about hunting pressure. We've talked about habitat changes. We've, we've talked about a lot of different things. But one thing that the elephant in the room is the fact that. It was 83 degrees on New Year's Day in, in Brandon, Mississippi. Oh, yeah. That was a record. 83 degrees. Now, the crazy thing, you can go to Mexico and kill ducks in 83 degrees, not so much in Mississippi. Yeah. And, that's, so, and um, so we got to accept that. It's warming. Yeah. We're in a warming period right now. Yeah. It, it's good that you brought that up because, you know, this year, I got to tell everyone in a lot of, a lot of these shows, for Louisiana, what saved my season down here was – the blueing and greening teal and spoonbills. <laughs> you know, that was the majority of the ducks I shot down here this year. But I took I took my kids because you know you know my two boys are you know they're duck hunters they're into it. Um, I took them up to Nebraska this year. We went up 
and we we uh, we had the opportunity to hunt in some um, flooded uh, cornfields right off the Missouri River. And you know, we're in these pit blinds, and you know, there's more mallards I've seen there than you know than ever. I mean, my, my oldest boy looks at me; he's you know, he's 14 years old, and he looks at me he's like, "Dad, this." We're watching you know, hundreds of ducks getting ready to come in on us. He's like, this looks like a DU commercial. There's nothing but green dollars coming in. I'm like, yeah. And we, we shot our 15 duck limit, you know, and we, we got some, you know, big honkers. But the thing is that was on December 22nd in Nebraska above, above Omaha, you know, two hours from the, the Dakotas. And it was 54 degrees in December. You know, that ain't good. It, yeah, it's, you know that's nuts. It should be covered in snow by then. And then we you know, we took you know, and that we you know, up there duck season closes a lot early. Closes I think you know mid December. I think we, we had two more days of hunting. And on Christmas Eve, I took them up to um, the DeSantos Refuge to go you know go look you know, look at the ducks and the birds. And I mean we, there was just thousands of snow geese, speckle bellies. Mallards, pintails, gadwall, tundra swans. And once again, it was in the high 50s on Christmas Eve in Nebraska. Those ducks, you know, with open water, they had no reason to come down here to Louisiana. Right. None at all. Right. That's right. You know, why would they? I mean, you know, they 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 evolved to conserve energy. You know, that that's the whole thing about it. Is Let's talk about something fun. Let's talk about duck hunting. <laughs> so, how was your trips down down south this year? They were good. You know, the duck showed up later to Mexico than normal. Um, out of western Mexico, Mazatlan, we were kind of biting our nails, so to speak. We had a lot of a lot of hunters going this year. We were biting our nails. We were a little worried it was dry. I was wondering how the drought out in the Pacific Flyway was going to affect it. And um, and we got a lot of rain around December, January, good rain. But a lot of those estuaries out there, those big water bodies, got real fresh water. And uh, and the secret to, to Mazatlan is all those big estuaries out there, those brackish water estuaries where all the shorebirds and invertebrates live, don't get hunted, don't get disturbed. Just millions of acres, I guess. But the birds have to drink when it gets hot. So they come in and drink fresh water, and that's where we get them. Well, when they got all that rain, the water got fresh. And the birds weren't having to come in. And slowly but surely, it, it evaporated off. And by the time February rolled around, it was gangbusters. And uh, it just got better and better through about March 20th. Uh, Obergon, on the other side of Sea of Cortez, about six hours south of, uh, or six hours north of Mazatlan, um, some of the ducks were late getting there. You know, it was really when those big fronts started hitting in January that a lot of the ducks showed up. I wouldn't say it was as many ducks as ever, but it was enough. The hunting was good. Uh, one thing I was really, really, really it made it made my season in North America. Um, we started that Obregon hunt. We called it a, a, a Brant combo. We would go hunt Brant three out of four mornings. And for about the past 
preceding four or five years, the it's like somebody turned a spigot off. We weren't seeing many brant, so we quit brant hunting. Really, we might go shoot a few. Last year, one morning, I just got we went out to a little pond. We're shooting a few birds, and they moved us. And uh, we went out on the bay, and the tide started to fall. We put up by this little drain, and I mean, literally step across it. Fresh water coming out into the, the salt water, and we shot lemons of brant. Just me and another guy shot a couple of lemons of brant. I'm like, wow, wow! I'm glad I got to do that this year. On some of those bays, I don't know what happened up in Alaska. Because on the one hand, I'm told that Eisenbeck Lagoon up in Alaska overwintered a record number of black brant. I don't. I'm just saying what I heard. I'm not. I'm not yeah. But at the same time, I saw more brant on those bays for the 12 days I was there than I had seen in a long time. One morning, I felt like I saw more brant trading over the bay. Than I had ever seen, and and you know we're shooting very modest limit five, that's the Mexico limit, and um, and and that's what that's what uh, whew, it was it was awesome, and, and it just so happened uh, it, was, it was so uh, it was so interesting to me. You know, duck hunting is very subjective. Back in the day, everybody wanted to brant hunt. Well, five years later, most of the clients in the lodge are like, ah, well, 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 we're glad we got to, but we'd rather go duck hunting. And so when I was there, last couple of weeks of season, I'm like, why well, we go brand hunting? And uh, I just happened to have some buddies there, some clients there that love to brand hunt. And we, we got to brand hunt uh, three mornings <laughs> one week and uh, a couple of mornings the week before. And we had some great brand hunts. And it was just, uh, it was awesome. Yeah. Uh, and while I was in Mexico, you know, we least expected, expected. So I'm sitting in Mexico, minding my own business, having a good time, interviewing clients, hunting with clients, shooting brands, everything's good, and I can't wait. Now, understand, I left home on September 10th or 9th, kicked off Blue Wing Teal, went down to Louisiana and Texas. I talked to y'all about that. Went to Canada, yep. three Canadian provinces, blah, 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 home at Thanksgiving for a day or two, back on the road up the eastern seaboard, home for Thanksgiving. Gone for a week, convention, boom, there goes my January. I'm tied up with convention. That's, yeah. that's when that's work time for me. That's that's crazy time. Then down to Mexico in February, and I'm going to be home, I'm thinking, for eight weeks. I have got a long you know, I, I'm ready. I'm ready to kind of I've got some work on the website, I've got some work on the podcast, I've got things to do. Yeah. And I get a phone call inviting me to come to Guatemala. I'm like, where? Guatemala. That's north of Nicaragua. Who duck comes in Guatemala? I asked him a bunch of questions, man. We start going back and forth, bing, 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 bing. And uh, so I fly home. I got my dog. Can't can't figure out Guatemala that quick to bring her down there. I've got a gun. There ain't getting no permits on such short notice to bring my firearm. So I can't go directly from Mexico. So I fly home as planned. Wash my clothes, spend the night in my bed, and the next morning, bing, 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 I'm heading to Guatemala. And I didn't know what to expect. I mean, Guatemala, I think, uh, whatever, you know, Netflix shows and stuff. I'm thinking Sandinista Rebels or something, you know, with, yeah. you know, I, I mean, jungle folk. I, I don't know what to expect, but I'm going. My wife's like, well, I said, I don't know what I'm getting into, but it sounds good. I, I talked to these boys on a video chat. And they look like good kids, and I'm, I'm going. Oh, boy, I'm going. And I show up. And 
I'll give you the punchline before the story. If I ever run away from home, I'm moving to Guatemala. I loved it. I loved it. It was yeah. It's like it's like Mexico a hundred years ago. They got Mexican food, but it's better than Mexico food. You know, it's, it's unbelievable. And, and we, we the, the 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 first morning, we uh, it's dark, dark roads, dark towns. You can kind of see banana trees and coconut trees. You know, in the jungle, it's a jungle. And uh, where we were, we drive a little bit, you know, and we meet some folks, and they're all on the front porch laying in hammocks, and um, walk across the road there, and Carrie walked down, got my little headlamp on, had a street light in sight, walked down and stepped into a pine go, a little wooden boat without more, off we go down this river. And we stop and go up in this little marshy area, and they start pushing over an island, we throw out our decoys and wow, the blue winged teal. And I look, guys, I love, I love, but don't ask me why, but I love blue winged teal. I love them. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm the same way. Shot a few gad balls. So we get done, everybody gets done. We, we, uh, we're all kind of hunting their own little blinds, and there's five or six of us hunting. And they're all just such, such super guys. You ever met those kind of people? I get along with everybody. I mean, nearly everybody. There's a couple of assholes around, but I, I like <laughs> people, you know. Yes. And uh, and but you ever met those people that that you just feel like you just fell in with your tribe or, or, or long lost family? <laughs> that, that that's how these guys hit me, man. I just yeah. like, man, this, this is awesome. I, I just felt at home and relaxed, and the food and the things we did and uh, the things I saw. And it's like it's been a long time. Every waking moment of an adventure was new. Yeah, like the way we we um, hunted the birds, and then we 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 went up to this little hilltop, sat under a little little cashew tree in the shade. It was windy, a little breezy blowing. That's hot down in Guatemala, son. You, you, man, scared of sweat. Don't need to go to Guatemala. It's, it's perpetually summertime. The Mississippi summertime down there. By, by yeah, just think of it, it was Mississippi, uh, Louisiana in May. That's that's Guatemala twenty four seven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, with the mosquitoes, or without the mosquitoes, there were a few mosquitoes, but the breeze would blow. And uh, yeah, but, but you know, we sat on that hilltop, and staff picked the ducks, and them old boys handed one of them some money, and off he goes in the boat. And what's up there? And he, and he says he's going to get he's going to get some carnitas and some lunch. And he went to town, and it's the, it's the kind of part of the world where they eat a lot of corn tortillas, and most everybody on the roadside or everywhere down there makes tortillas all day, every day. So we fresh tortillas and carnita and chicharrones and they brought some coconuts. We drank the juice and and just had this big time drinking beer and talking up. Then we went to went to another part and uh, went off into the mangrove. I told y'all about that. It was awesome. Um, just the way they hunt and how they hunt and how friendly the people were. And then we we go to another part of a wetland and, and stay in this this uh, this house. I, you know, and the boy owns a on the dairy, a little dairy. And I, I, man, it, they would uh, all those cats. It ain't just milk he's producing. It's it's genetics. For, yeah, he got a top dairy farm. And I, I'd never seen it. We go out there and he got a 150 calves named. And while he's milking the mama, uh, they'll open up the gate. And yell a name, Nico. And all those cows just sit there looking at him, except for the one coming spinning around on four hooves 
running at him, and he stops, gets a leash on him, and runs to mama and starts drinking milk. I huh. 150 cows got a name to come to the name. And <laughs> that, that's that nuts. Trees. There were there were cashew trees and uh, just all these different fruits and chocolates and, and it was just gosh, it was amazing. It's it just I can't wait to go back. Yeah, I told them, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. They're not ready for a duck hunt yet. Uh, I mean, yeah, for a group of us to go down there and hunt, sure, man, we can go do that. But just kind of scale and start running, you know, a group a week or something. They, they, they've got just a look, and these boys are it now. I'm gonna tell you, these guys are smart and hardworking and uh, efficient. They're gonna figure this out, but they just got to get a little more, um, a little more resource under the belt to, to accommodate more people, so that we don't experience the, the pressure problem. But yeah, it's crazy man, just sitting there in the evenings, uh, drinking a drinking a beer and watching six foot waves crush the shore off the Pacific Ocean and. Oh, I just had a wonderful time. It just, yeah, it sounds now super neat. And of course, you know, by home, it means I'm not I'm not elsewhere, but I'm not physically sitting at home. Heck, I'm sitting in uh, somewhere in Louisiana. I'm going to go band up to Paul Lake in the morning. Oh, nice. And, uh, yeah, I'm meeting him at 430 in the morning with a bunch of volunteers, and looks like he's got a bunch of ducks on bait. We're going to shoot rocket nets, and that required a lot of volunteer labor to get those birds out to keep them safe and keep them dry and keep them calm. So they don't stress out. And he, he is he is one of the world's foremost experts, I'm convinced, on doing it right. And and I just I just enjoy getting my hands on birds, you know, and, and seeing it. And again, time and money. It's it's a little bitty fun thing I can do to contribute to waterfowl conservation, right? Give up give up a day or two. To go out and do this, and uh, and I love it, and and I'm and then I'm just kind of kicking around, you know, Mississippi and Louisiana doing recordings and stuff until late April. Late April, I, I leave for uh, Argentina, and I'll be home. I'll be home in uh, late June, and home most of July. Not all of July, but most. And most, yeah. That's that's pretty much it, man. August uh, looks like now. I, I just had a booking down in uh, Africa, so it looks like I'll be most of August in Africa, home for a few weeks, and September starts again. And here we go. You gonna be around the, the Lake Charles? You gonna be around the Lake Charles area? I will be. I will let me be. let I, me know I'll when. Be, I'll be coming through there. I would love to come down there and hunt with y'all. Yeah, let me know yeah. when. Yeah, we'll down there this uh this teal season. You know the thing I like about uh, you know the crazy thing about Lake Charles area is right around till season they have that great big Delta waterfowl event. Y'all ever go to that? I've never been Lake to Charles. that. It, at one time, if not every time, it it is. Well, I know preceding COVID, and I'm sure still, it's the largest Delta waterfowl event under one roof, like dinner. And yeah, awesome. I, you know, I go in there and I, I I just meet a lot of people, see a lot of people I know, and I, I just I really enjoy it. And uh, especially since we're going out and teal hunting and doing things all around it, you know. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I get down that way. That's, the thing I like about Southwest Louisiana, and again, it goes back to all these opportunities right here in our backyard. You know, you don't have to go halfway across the world for an adventure. Go the next state over, scratch and dig a little deeper in your own backyard. Go yes. the next state over somewhere. But you know, southwest Louisiana 
in southeast Texas have a blue wing teal hunting culture. Man, some of those, some of those times, some a Saturday morning when you're driving out to go teal hunting, it, it's like you're up around Lake Madame Mesquite or parts of Arkansas with all the traffic on the road going teal hunting. You don't see that in lots of places in the country. You know, it, it, it's like it's a big deal. Yeah, in southwest Louisiana, and you got the marsh habitat and the wetlands and the, and the rice fields. Yeah, and the rice fields. You you've got the habitat to attract and hold a lot of blue wings. That's what's so amazing. Yeah, you know? and I and I, Lord knows, I love a blue wing too. Blue wing too. Yeah, I mean that's one thing. I, I mean, I absolutely. After I retired out of the army, I stayed down here, and because I, I, you know, California, growing up being you know born and raised in California, duck hunting up there in the Sac Valley. We didn't have a blooming teal population there, and we didn't have a teal uh, season either. Um, but I mean, just you know, hunting Catahoula Lake, which I you know, if anyone gets a chance to hunt Catahoula, it's it's kind of like you know, I can I compare for a duck hunter going to see Mount Rushmore. It's kind of this like that iconic duck hunting area. Like you know, you always read DU magazines, you read about it on the internet of Catahoula Lake. And it is, I mean, during teal season, I love it. it it's just a, such a neat, a neat lake where I mean, you can walk across most of it about shin deep of water and there's just thousands and thousands of blue wings. And, you know, you drive an hour Southwest from there and you're in, you know, thick marsh, uh, rice fields, you know, there's a hackberry um, refuge complex. There's, you know, the Cameron Prairie Refuge, there's lack of scene. There's so much areas and so much, you know, just duck culture down here. And it starts with that blue wing teal season and it goes all the way through. I mean, even the speckle belly and the goose hunting out here is becoming phenomenal. I've been hunting blue wings 25 or 30 years, you know, since I really got in duck hunting. When I got in, I got all in, kind of like I am now. And uh, but I was in college, and, and we chased blue wings. But in Mississippi, you just kind of, maybe you got them, maybe you don't, because they're just pulsing through there. And I've always felt like if I go to a duck cold and we, we shoot good, and we go back the next day and shoot good, and we go back the next day and shoot good, they probably aren't the same blue wing, because they're just kind of pulsing through there. And uh, so, but to make it, to put it bluntly, it's very hit or miss duck hunting in Mississippi. Yeah, you know, the average the average. If I went and hunted sixteen days in Mississippi, I'd expect to limit a couple of times, and then shoot a lot of zeros and a lot of ones or twos. That's what I'd expect, depending on how the weather was and the fronts moving. But you get down there, and it's it's like real, and, and not only is it like real duck season, it's more consistent than real yeah. duck season. Some of these recent real duck seasons have been. It's consistent. Yeah. And, uh, and I don't mind. I don't mind the skeeters and whatnot. And it, 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 the warm weather doesn't bother me a bit. I just, I greatly enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, uh, so much. Even Sharp, Sharp comes down from Georgia and pretty much lives. You know, becomes a, a Louisiana for two weeks. Sharp. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So I, I usually bring a bunch of. I work with an outfitter and bring a bunch of guys down, a couple groups. But this year, I'm gonna be down there for the whole season, helping him guide. And yeah. it's 
the the culture down there it, it gives me it, it makes me think a lot of uh lake real foot in that sandberg area where you go stop at little gas stations and everyone's in there after the hunt and before the hunt chat and everyone's in camo it's just that duck hunting culture is just so rich down there especially Boy, during the teal season every little and every little quick stop in in louisiana they probably got their own boudin recipe. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. And some's better than others, but none of it's just real bad, you know? Yeah. And, uh, wow, you know, the food um, down there is just amazing. And all the boys I know in Louisiana, are, they know how to make what they call a gravy, you know? Thick brown gravy. Eat good. Make the pot You can't beat that. Make yeah, the pot stinks. Thinking up the pot. That's exactly right. What they yeah. But you know, yeah. isn't that great, man? I mean, that's such, that's such a great part of this this duck hunting culture virus that I just I love and I see it. I get to see it really worldwide. You know, the one thing I miss, I, I love getting off into exotic and new, especially new parts of the world because of species. And it, and it's not that I collect species. But I get to experience uh, how how they work and how they fly and what they do holding them and studying them and hunting them. I, I just I, you know the new habitats. But you know what you know what the downside of that is. I really miss the familiar species of home. Now now granted I can be halfway across the world and that by John and you'd be surprised that man we're shooting red crested poachers, ridgeless poachers, common shell ducks. I've seen gargany. I've killed gargany. Uh, ruddy shell does just some real exotic stuff but you'd be surprised you know mallards pintails gadwalls uh shovelers galore green wing tail but they're common green wings but they look like ours uh, eurasian wigeons and, and and it's just but it's those mallards and gadwalls and shovelers you know and pintails they're home they're familiar and i like that that's kind of cool you know yeah, Jake, the Tondras has has come in at one time. We've been a lot of different places together. We've hunted four continents together now with him filming, and pursuant to those hunts, we killed the world shoveler slam, red shoveler, northern shoveler, Cape shoveler, Australasian shoveler. We've seen them all, you know, and. Um, and and he, and and he, but as we started getting up in that northern hemisphere, he just he commented one time he couldn't believe how worldwide these shovelers were, and what's so crazy about shovelers is how you know it's kind of a joke bird, uh, Hollywood smile mouth or baloney snatcher, whatever you. <laughs> baloney snatcher—that's a Louisiana term right there. Whatever your local word is for it, you know, it's, 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 it's most people shoot them, but some people don't. Yeah, you get off in other parts of the world, Pakistan, Azerbaijan, um, all those parts of the world. I get to get up at they uh, Australia, uh, where they cannot shoot the Australasian shoveler uh, for some reason. They revere it as the trophy of trophies. You know, I, really? I tried to show I tried to show a guide over in the Middle East one time the the uh, Spoonzilla, you know, decoy with the teeth and all. He didn't get it. He 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 just couldn't get it because the yeah. shovelers a duck. Yeah, you know, a good duck. And, and he he just couldn't. He he just shrugged. He's like he didn't he didn't get it. 
I'll tell you, I'll tell you something. We were talking about blue wings a little while ago. Uh, made me think I hunted in Utah a few years ago. And uh, this real old club that's formed, I think, I think that club started, I think that club uh, around 1901. And uh, 1901 or 1902 or whatever, they, when that club got underway. And uh, break break, hanging in my camp house is this little old picture, this little print, a couple of prints really. And, and it, I think they were hanging in my granddad's office at one time. And, and I just always looked at them and wondered. It kind of sort of looks like you cut the top off an old a drawing on top of a calendar and laminated onto like some plyboard and been kind of beveled on the edge. It's like maybe like a high school shop project, you know, back in for those kids that remember high school shop. And, and I, I just I just assumed maybe my dad made it in high school or my granddad made it back in the shop to hang it off. I don't know, but now I've got him hanging up. And the crazy thing about it is that blue wing tail print is uh it's a it's a painting obviously, a print made from a painting. And it's great blue wings. And they're flying over some kind of an open marsh setting with marsh grass, brown marsh grass. And in the back are low-hanging purple mountains. Well, you know, blue wings aren't really a Pacific flyway species. That really, if you think about where a lot of your blue wings come through, you don't see mountains like that. So it vaguely looks like Louisiana marsh with mountains in the back. Yeah. So one day looking at it, I just figured, you know what? I bet that is an artist that just decided, um, he just decided he liked to, he wanted to paint that. It just made for a pretty picture. He just put all the elements that appealed to him and he painted it and made a print. Well, break, break. I was hunting at that camp house and, uh, old, venerable old camp house. And I walked out of the den, was kind of looking at some of the artwork hanging up and I couldn't believe it. There was that print, but it wasn't a print. It was the it was an original painting. And I was squinted over looking at it, you know, and and, and looking at the names, not trying to figure out the name of very old painting. And one of the old members come in and he, he said, What are you looking at? So I'm looking at this print, and I can't believe it. I, I I I've got a copy of that hanging in my camp house. And I always wondered, you know, there he goes, Oh son, that painting, it, it, that's a real painting. It was painted here on this camp. That's where it came from. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. I mean, it was, it, and, and blue wings aren't real big species in Utah. You know, they, they may get them in the, in the spring, but they don't get a lot in the fall. But I yeah. thought it was very coincidental. And now every time I look at that shop project hanging in my camp house, I think, well, I know where that was painted. I just love blue wings. I, I yeah, I'm not gonna say they're my favorite duck, but I sure love them. I like. Yeah, them. I, I, I feel the same way. They're colored up, you know. I just I love blue wing teal. Yeah, that that's probably the next bird I want to mount is a you know a nice blue with a white crescent, um, blue wing teal. I definitely. Well, what, what what you really want to look for when you shoot blue wings that the better the, the older the better, and what what I what you really see with a really old really mature plumed out blue wing, they get that purple head and they get that crescent on their face. But if you look at the ridge lines of their of their their hat, they got two racing stripes, white racing stripes at the top above the eyes that come down the crest and run all the way down and start to form a V at the back of their neck. 
Hmm. The brighter and more defined that is, the older and, and better he is. Really? And, uh, it, that, yeah. And um, and here's something funny. We talk about shovelers. Now we're back on blue wings. <laughs> blue wings. Blue wings. Shovelers. All four shovelers of the world. Gargany. Go look him up on the internet if you don't know what he is. Cinnamon teal. And hot and tight teal. They're all in, in a genus called spatula. Which is the shoveler genius, blue wings and and shovelers, and you know if you look if you take a cinnamon teal wing, and a blue wing teal wing, and a shoveler wing and a cinnamon teal and blue wing and you hold them all up, the average guy might not be able to tell the difference if they saw just the wing. In fact, if you look at a blue wing, an adult blue wing, and an adult shoveler wing. And hold them up. There's one discerning factor between the two. And that's the fact that on the, uh, I believe it's the, sh- the shoveler, if you look at the mid rib of his primary feathers, they're white. So it's yeah. kind of a white radii. Otherwise, they look identical. Yeah, I mean, and yeah, it, it gets pretty sketchy yeah, down here fun. sometimes in teal season, Louisiana. Yeah, well, they're early migrants. So that, that's a, you know, so it, it, you're kind of splitting hairs. That you don't like shovelers, but you love blue wings. Blue wings, yeah. Cinnamon teal, and 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 seeing the feeding habits of cinnamon teal, it's like they're like a step below. They're like the crazy, crazy cousin Eddie of the family. <laughs> you know, they're they're uh, when you really get into cinnamon teal habitat, it, it's going to be just rank marsh. You know, it's going to be a part of the marsh, like out in Sac Valley, that nobody else wants to go hunt because it's just a bunch of shovelers and trash birds. Yeah. Quote, unquote. That's where those cinnamon teal are going to hang out. There's a spot we hunt down in Mexico. Um, you can't tell it when you're just out there in the blind. But when your dog comes out having been going through all that mud and that water, you go, ooh, she needs a bath. What's that smell? And it's guaranteed cinnamon teal. Guaranteed. Now you're gonna see some fintail and Mexican ducks and blue wings and, and and green wings and some divers. Guaranteed in a morning hunt, y'all gonna shoot cinnamon teal. But it's a real, real bottomless mud silted in. You don't dare wanna step into it because you won't get out. And about a half mile. Upslope to the hog farm. So eventually, all that water that comes through that hog farm ends up in that retention pond. It's like a bar pit. And, you know, with that observation right there, I'm going to tell you, you know what I don't shoot many of on that hunt? Shovelers. Really? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And uh, so I'm just saying, cinnamon teal, they are a beautiful bird. But boy, they got some, like I say, I think think Cousin Eddie is a good description. They they Cousin (laughs) Eddie of the Fashion family. You know? Yeah. It was was weird, you know, growing up there because there was was a lot of things I took took for granted. And you you said the Brants. I wish I hunted brands back then. I, it was just something I didn't think about or even, you know, it was, you know, I hunted, like I said, up in Maxwell and um, 
in the Butte Sink, and um, I just never thought about hitting the coast for Brants. And I, I knew guys who did it. I knew it was just, I don't know. I kind of, you know, kind of kick myself in the ass now for not doing it, but uh, it is what it is. And maybe, maybe one day I'll, I'll get back out there and do it. But you know, that's a good that's a good note I think to end on is about taking things for granted. Um, I don't have any regrets. You know, this this world owes me nothing, man. If I I fall asleep at night and don't wake up, look, this world owes me nothing. I, I have had a a really I've been blessed, very very blessed, despite some early setbacks. I've, I've I've been blessed, but um. The only thing I can describe is regret in my whole life, both duck hunting career, business, family, are, are the things I took for granted. We take for granted, especially when we're young, we take for granted our health. We take for granted our, our, our family. We take for granted our friendships. We take for granted so much in our lives because, you know, we're young and we're bulletproof and tomorrow's going to come. But the sad truth of life is there are no guarantees in the universe, you know, and, and things change. I mean, that's one thing about this year down in Mexico. Back in the day, so many brands, they were so abundant, it could never end. And we hunted brands and we hunted brands and we shot them and we hunted them. And it's like, it's like it could never end. And then with climate change or uh, habitat change or something, the brand quit coming down like they did. And we went through some real dry periods and I, and I, I began to think, well, darn, I'm never going to see them again. And then this year, I got to experience that again, just like it was some of those same blinds. They got a few blinds on those bays they call Ramsey blinds. Because just over the years, watching the way the birds move, I say, I'd like to hunt that point. Really? Yeah, right there. It turned out to be a pretty decent blind. And this year I got to go back to some of those same bays and those same haunts and break out the flag. My buddy Sam always remembered the flag. I never remembered. I brought my call. I always bring my call just for posterity. Had my call with me. Had my new char dog. You know, she had never really, except for last year, a few brands. She got to retrieve brand like that this year. We shot some bands. And, uh, but you know what I, you know what I, what really struck me while I'm sitting in a blant blind, blind looking at those brant hanging on that strap, not to take them for granted. Because, yeah. because, because I don't know if they're going to come back next year. You know, we had a, I might have had a great year where you hunt this year. You don't know that they're going to come back. You don't need, even if you got a, a season, if you go into the blinds, you're shooting two or three ducks a day. <laughs> don't don't take it for granted because you know what it can get worse yep. enjoy it enjoy the time with your kids enjoy the time with your friends enjoy those retrieves enjoy it for what it is and what it ain't don't take it for granted because because it can get worse you know and, and I, I've just seen it to me you know, here, here's a last little story about taking things for granted you think about the average guy we, we're working, we're paying bills, we're paying mortgages, we're, we, we, you know, us old timers, we started at the bottom, we climb up slowly, a rung at a time. And all things equal, if, if everything works out, you know, uh, as you get older in life, you got, you got 
a little more disposable income than he did. You know, you, and, and, and then your kids are out of college. Your truck's paid for. Your house is paid for. You know, as we get older, and now because we're retired, I'm not retired, but so older, you got more time. And so I had a lot of clients back in 2018 and 19. I had a lot of clients that have become close personal friends, the kind of friends I'll talk to half dozen or ten times a year. I called one the other day. I'm driving down the road, heading to three, four, had three hours. We talked for an hour and a half. I couldn't believe it, you know, because we're friends. But they were, they were making these trips. They were going on these trips. They were at a point and a time in their life that they, they had the time and the disposable income to go and enjoy some of these hunts, and COVID hit. And now wasn't nobody going nowhere for one year, for two years. And if Argentina were closed this, this, this season, three years. And it, it, it surprised me. It just, I think they took it for granted. Maybe I don't know, but I did. Yeah. It's always counted on seeing them down there. And now, you know, if you're 70 years old, there's, for some of us, there's a big difference in 70 and 73. Yeah. Big, let me tell you this, boy, there's a big difference in 52 and 55. There's a big difference. There's a big difference in 35 and 38, 38 and 40. There's a big difference every couple of years. You look back and go, whew, I wish I was two years younger again. And, um, and it just, it's just it's, it's sobering how many people I know that in just that two-year stay-at-home thing uh, got too old or got cancer. I, I've got I've got I've got a client waiting on a lung transplant. I've got uh, two clients coping with some some very uh, very profound health issues, and some of them just got they they, they don't have the mobility anymore or desire to go and do this, you know, and and so. I go to Argentina this year. I'm going to enjoy it, but I don't take it for granted because next year, this year may be the last year for a myriad of different reasons. Well, just get back home. It ain't got to be halfway across the world to some Disneyland-like vacation. You know, appreciate what you got. Take care of it. Roll up your sleeves. Put your time and your money into it, but don't take it for granted. Now, that's just my standoff message, man. We tend to take yeah. everything for granted. Those yeah. mornings we couldn't take. Those mornings we couldn't shoot nothing but old brown shovels were were pretty funny until we can't even shoot them no more. Yep. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, and, you're, and you're seeing it, but I mean, I'll tell you what. That's a you know that's a good good spot to end off on, and you know definitely good message. And like always, a Ramsey, I you know, greatly appreciate you coming on. For me and Sharp, it's always good. Thank y'all. It's always good to hear. I listen to your podcast, by the way. Thank you. I drive enough. I listen to a bunch of them. And and I record mine. And and I'm going to get down to Louisiana because I want to get y'all on my podcast. Oh, yeah. I love that. And uh, I I, I look at it like uh, I describe our podcast. We talk to biologists that are much smarter than me, buddy. But I like to talk to regular duck hunters like myself 
because, you know, I, I like to talk to historians. And, and, you know, I like to meet, if I come down to y'all's neck of the woods, I like to meet with somebody uh, that makes boudin or to get a little cultural context because the way I, the way I describe my, my podcast or my passion project, I call it, that is podcasting right now, is, is, is trying to uh, immortalize, immortalize, you know, duck hunting culture, real duck hunting culture. You know, and, and to me, us regular duck hunters, like the guys listening, like myself, like everybody else, we are the heartbeat of American duck hunting. Not industry, not 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 the big companies, not not you know, us, us regular folks that are going out with our kids on public land or small land holdings or clubs and pit blinds. We are the heartbeat of this thing. And and I I just the older I get, the more I like to just be among my kind of people. And you know, that that's just that just I love to I love to just share a blind and feel that heartbeat. You know, that that's 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 thank y'all for having me. I really enjoyed right. it. No problem. Well like always we like to thank you know Valor Honor Outdoors for the things they do for the veterans and first responders and their families. And we'd like to b- big shout out to the Real Decoy Company for supporting this podcast. If you guys are looking for decoys and motion decoys, go and check them out and use promo code FWC, Flyway Connections 22, for 50% off your next purchase with uh, the Real Decoy Company. Hey, Russell Ramsey, thank you very much. And um, Ramsey Russell, Ramsey Russell, easy mistake. Go ahead. Oh, my, 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 my fault. It happens all the time. Yeah. First name. Yeah. Well, I've I've a real good friend. Um, his first name is Russell. So I'll always. I understand. Yeah, real, real good buddy of mine from all the way back from kindergarten. But hey, I appreciate you always having you on, and I definitely definitely want to get you on the hunting here pretty soon and hang out with you in Louisiana. Sounds good. I look forward to it. Thank y'all. Mm-hmm.